0: Hundreds of market-leading companies worldwide use GEP software to transform their procurement and supply chain operations. Why? GEP software, built on GEP Quantum, the AI-powered, low-code platform for procurement, supply chain, and sustainability, helps businesses achieve impressive new levels of resilience, sustainability, and competitiveness. GEP software helps companies drive real digital transformation and achieve amazing results. GEP.com Hello, and welcome to The Intelligence on Economist Radio. I'm your host, Jason Palmer. Every weekday, we provide a fresh perspective on the events shaping your world. More than a decade ago, $230 million went missing in Russia. The hunt for that money has become a global mission, but reporting by our correspondent, raises concerns that Switzerland isn't doing much to solve the mystery. And, Western-style stand-up comedy doesn't have much heritage in China, but it's spreading fast. Problem is, Chinese audiences don't think it's quite so funny when it's a female comic up on the stage telling it how it is. First up, though.
1: Senators, how say you? Is the respondent Donald John Trump guilty or not guilty?
0: The precise vote count had been in question, the outcome all but assured. Few expected that Donald Trump's impeachment for inciting the mob that stormed the Capitol last month would lead to a conviction. And so, on Saturday, the former president was cleared.
1: It is therefore ordered and adjudged that the said Donald John Trump be, and he is hereby, acquitted of the charge in said article.
0: Democrats were quick to share their disdain for the outcome.
2: What we saw in that Senate today was a cowardly group of Republicans who apparently have no option.
0: This was about choosing country over Donald Trump. And 43 Republican members chose Trump. In a statement, President Joe Biden referred to this sad chapter in our history, calling it a reminder that democracy is fragile seven Republican senators joined every Democrat in voting to convict Mr. Trump. That makes it the most bipartisan such vote in American history. Yet it was still 10 senators shy of the two-thirds majority required for a conviction. It was the last scene of the last act in the roiling drama that was the Trump presidency. But that's not at all to say that there isn't more drama in store. So on Saturday,
3: we saw a second attempt to convict President Trump defeated, but this one was very different from the first, and I think it will have real repercussions. Edward
0: Carr is the deputy editor of The Economist.
3: The case that the house managers were trying to make was that this was an absolutely fundamental attack on democracy. A sitting president, objecting to a fair result in an election, had tried to overturn that result by setting a violent mob on Congress we're going to walk down to the Capitol. Yes. Yes. Let's take the, Capitol. Take the Capitol It doesn't come much heavier than that in terms of an attack on the constitutional order of the United States. It's
2: that direction.
3: And importantly in, in this trial, it gave House managers a chance to present. Uh, Video footage that hadn't been seen before to millions of Americans who are watching this online and on television. These videos, that were often shot by the members of the mob themselves, show really harrowing and disturbing details of what was happening inside Congress at the time. And the House managers did a a really good job of of packaging this material so it had raw emotional punch for all of those who were present, who'd often all themselves been through this experience. But also, it it really brought home, I think, to all of those Americans who are watching just how terrifying and threatening this experience had been.
0: And yet, the, the outcome of the vote seemed never really to be in doubt. What does the outcome tell you about the Republican Party at this moment?
3: I do think it's important that the reason why at least some Republicans voted to acquit President Trump was that they felt that the procedure of impeachment against someone who'd already left office was unconstitutional. And they didn't contest that the actions themselves were shocking and appalling and that he bore responsibility. And there was no one more important than this than the Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell, who, having voted on what he said were narrow constitutional grounds to acquit, gave an absolutely blistering condemnation of everything that uh, President Trump had done after the election.
1: President Trump is practically and morally responsible for provoking the events of the day. No question about it.
3: He did, however, say that there were further remedies available in the courts that could be pursued if necessary.
1: Put another way, in the language of today, President Trump is still liable for everything he did while he was in office. As an ordinary citizen, unless the statute of limitations is run, still liable for everything he did while he's in office. Didn't get away with anything yet. Yeah.
0: So is that to say we'll see more court proceedings soon?
3: Look, there's some movement in Georgia over attempts to pressure the Secretary of State of Georgia to change the election results. Something might come of that. I think moves inside Congress to censure Trump are unlikely. And that invoking the 14th Amendment, which would stop Trump from running again out, it is unlikely.
0: And that aside, what's your view on Mr. Trump's future political ambitions at this stage?
3: Well, characteristically, he came out immediately uh, after the vote talking about his plans for a vision for a bright and radiant and limitless American future. And so he's keeping his options open. And it's certainly clear that the amount of support that he got shows that Republican senators feel that he is a a key figure for them, and they're frightened of crossing him because of the threats of primaries. Having said that, though, the fact that seven Republican senators were willing to vote against him, that is significant. And there's a sign, I think, that Trump's hold on the party is weakening somewhat, but it's still pretty substantial. And when you put it against the enormity of the events of January the 6th, it is remarkable that it is as strong as it's proven.
0: And there was plenty of discussion on the Democratic side about just essentially getting this behind us and getting on with President Biden's agenda. Where has he been in all of this?
3: He's played a very canny game by keeping his distance. He did speak out at one point after the video evidence that was shown by the House managers and expressed his concern about this attack on democracy. But by and large, he's kept a distance. And I think that's been presidential and also has reflected his genuine focus on trying to get things done and particularly to deal with the coronavirus and to get people vaccinated. So he's given the impression of a man who wants to get on with the job and is not going to be distracted by this business, which is essentially the business of Congress. And I think that was a politically wise decision.
0: And so does this put a line under the events of January the 6th? The procedure has been gone through, but is the country really ready to move on from it?
3: I think it was really important that the procedure did happen. I mean, some people argued because President Trump was always likely to be acquitted, there was no point because it would just end up exonerating him. I don't think that's what's happened. But there is a real question as to, in the future, when Americans look back on January the 6th, 2021 whether you have two very, very contrasting views. One that this was an attempt to coup, and the other that this was brave patriots protesting a stolen election. I think it's important for the United States and for the health of its democracy that eventually a single narrative emerges of those events, and that that narrative is that this was an attempt to overturn an election, and just how dangerous that is for a democracy.
0: Ed, thank you very much for your time.
3: Jason, thanks very much.
0: A new podcast from The Economist launches today. It's called The Jab. It'll unlock the science, the data, and the politics behind the most ambitious inoculation program the world has ever seen
1: so i'm in the bowels of the jerusalem basketball arena israel's biggest indoor sports venue which has been transformed into a massive vaccination center i've been handed a number 940 and currently 937 is being vaccinated so let's see how long we have to wait
0: In the premiere episode this week, The Economist's Israel correspondent gets vaccinated in Jerusalem. Subscribe to The Jab from Economist Radio wherever you get your podcasts. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promo for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Sergei Magnitsky was 37 years old. He left a wife and two children. In 2009, a Russian lawyer named Sergei Magnitsky died in prison. I got the news of his murder the morning of the um, 17th, and I've made it my life's work since then to get justice for Sergei Magnitsky. He'd been investigating the $230 million theft of a tax refund. It was meant for an investment firm called Hermitage Capital Management. In the years since, the firm's boss, Bill Browder, has worked to expose the corruption and theft that led to Mr. Magnitsky's death an effort that included congressional testimony in 2017. Unfortunately, justice was impossible to get in Russia. They circled the wagons and exonerated everybody involved, gave promotions and state honors to the people who were most complicit. So I sought
3: justice outside of Russia.
0: The $230 million was spread all over the world, with many countries reacting by passing new laws and trying to reclaim it. But in Switzerland, where a criminal complaint was opened a decade ago over suspicious money in two accounts, little progress has been made. In fact, the Attorney General's office announced at the end of last year that it planned to close the investigation and return money that's been held in Swiss banks. But reporting by The Economist suggests the case might not be as open and shut as the authorities say it is, raising questions about the country's efforts to clean up its act when it comes to money laundering.
1: The Swiss authorities say the link between the sums suspected of being laundered in Switzerland, any offence committed abroad, has to be established with a sufficient degree of certainty. And what they say is that that was difficult to do in this case and that therefore they were justified in in closing the case.
0: Matthew Valencia is The Economist's deputy business affairs editor.
1: However, in documents that I saw, that, that we saw at The Economist, cast out on that, and these include transcripts of court hearings, of rulings from Switzerland, from a number of courts. And they raised some pretty disturbing questions about the Swiss investigation, about the integrity of the investigation.
0: How so? What do you mean? What questions does it raise?
1: Well, the Swiss case was overseen by the attorney general, a guy called Michael Lauber, and there were a number of other people involved. One was the lead prosecutor in the case. He brought in... A Swiss police officer who had particular expertise in Russia. We call this gentleman Victor K. I should explain that that's not his real name. We call him that because we weren't able to identify him by his actual name. If we'd done that, we would have fallen foul of the privacy laws in Switzerland. These three officials were involved in the case, and there were various suspicious goings on. To give just one example, in 2014, The three of them were pictured on a boat on a lake in Siberia, Lake Baikal. And that trip, it transpires, was hosted by a very senior prosecutor from Russia, a guy called Sark Karapetyan. Now, he was later implicated in efforts to sabotage money laundering investigations, including one related to the Magnitsky case.
0: You say that's just one example of suspicious behavior, implying that there's more in this complex case.
1: Yeah, there were plenty of examples of rather strange-looking activity. So documents that we obtained showed some odd behavior, particularly from Victor Kay, the police officer. So, for instance, in 2014, he went on a boar-hunting trip with the Russian prosecutor with Karapetyan. Then a couple of years later, 2016, they were off on a trip again. This time they went bear hunting in Far Eastern Russia. And that was a trip that was paid for by a Russian oligarch, as was at least one other of the trips that Victor Kay made. Another strange happening was when Victor Kay came back from one of his trips, he met with a veteran Swiss politician, a guy called Andreas Gross. Now, Gross had written a report for the Council of Europe on the Magnitsky case. And this report was very critical of the Russians. And Gross talked to me about his meeting with Victor Kaye. And he said that he'd agreed to go and meet him because he thought that the policeman wanted his help. But when he got there, it turned into a kind of interrogation that lasted all day long. And he told me that it felt like Kay was more of a Russian investigator than a Swiss one.
0: So, Victor K is hanging out with a Russian prosecutor on trips funded by a Russian oligarch and then putting the screws to a Swiss politician who's essentially trying to investigate the same kind of case. I mean, what did Victor K's bosses, the, the Swiss authorities, say when he came back from this trip?
1: Well, eventually they were furious, at least reportedly, The thing that got them most angry was that after another trip that Victor K had made to to Russia, he came back and it turned out he travelled there on his diplomatic passport and that part of the trip at least had been paid for by the Russians. But he did this despite the fact that he'd asked for permission to go and his superiors had said no, they'd refused permission, but he went anyway. Some of his superiors at least were livid and they filed a criminal complaint against him there were four charges that were leveled against him, and these included things like abuse of office and bribery. But then what happened next was in January of 2019, not long after this, Mr Lauber's office, the Attorney General's office, dropped the charges and replaced them with one single charge, a lighter charge, called acceptance of advantage. Victor Kaye lost his job partly because of the trip he'd made that was unauthorised. And he was convicted over another trip, the bear hunting excursion. But there was no jail time. He didn't even end up having to pay a fine. There had originally been a fine, but that was quashed on appeal. And it's worth mentioning at the same time as all of this was going on, Mr Lauber, the Attorney General, was finding himself in some hot water. He was forced to step down as Attorney General in August of last year.
0: So the upshot of all this is that these three men, the attorney general, the lead prosecutor, the Russia experts investigator, essentially have been too cozy with the Russians that they're notionally investigating. I mean, what has any of them said about their involvement in particular with the Magnitsky case?
1: Yes, that's right. The conclusion one draws looking at all of this is that they did get too cozy. The relationship with the Russians who had an interest in stymieing the case just got too close. Now, in terms of what they say about it, the Attorney General's office has defended all of its actions throughout. It has said that its investigation was thorough and that it was handled properly. They've concluded that there may have been a certain amount of money that was linked to illicit activity, but it's only a small amount. And the calculations they've done have have really puzzled some experts who argue that the method used was just far too generous to the account holders. As for Mr Lauber, he refused to comment to us on the grounds that he's no longer Attorney General, having stepped down. Victor Kaye did not respond to questions. We contacted him multiple times and didn't receive any comment. And I should add, on top of that, we did try to get comment from the Russians, from the prosecutor's office there, and that was met with silence. What about apart from the Magnitsky case and and the sense
0: that people may have of Swiss propriety and neutrality in light of all this?
1: Yeah, well, I think the case raises some very interesting questions about Switzerland more broadly and its reputation in the world. You know, it's the biggest market in the world for offshore private wealth. Of course, it's long had a reputation as somewhere that foreigners with lots of money can park it. Some of that money is, is perfectly legitimate, some of it not. There have been many cases in the past where it transpired that um, dirty money was parked in, in Swiss banks. There's been a sort of tentative cleanup going on for a decade now. And the Magnitsky probe and the fact that it, it turns out to have been so compromised really doesn't help that. In my view, it, it seriously undermines those efforts.
0: Matthew, thank you very much for joining us.
1: Thank you, Jason.
0: When Yang Li, a 28-year-old comedian, took the mic on a Chinese stand-up comedy show, she, perhaps unsurprisingly, told a
2: joke. (laughs) (laughs)
0: It's a gag that's landed her in hot water with quite a few Chinese men.
2: So here, Yang Li was telling her audience the following joke. Men are adorable, but mysterious. After all, they can look so average and yet be so full of confidence.
0: Stephanie Studer writes about China for The Economist.
2: Now, that may not seem so risque to Westerners used to stand-up comedy with far more insulting humor. But in this case, many Chinese men took offense. And indeed, a group of them in December reported Miss Yang to China's broadcast regulator for sexism.
0: And so who is Yang Li?
2: Yang Li is a 28-year-old comedian. Hello, I'm Yang Li. She last year earned the title of Punchline Queen on Rock and Roast, which is a fantastically popular, competitive stand-up comedy show where a panel and the audience get to vote for their favourite comedian. And a lot of female comedians have been appearing on this show, which is giving them a new and real prominence in China. And a lot of them are turning to this form of comedy because it is freer than traditional types of Chinese comedy and allows them to express themselves in lots of new ways. And they're also bringing up subjects that are often seen in China as being indecent for a woman to be discussing. But male audiences are now unhappy about becoming the butt of the joke.
0: And so why stand-up comedy then as that kind of outlet?
2: Well, this is a relatively new form in China, Um, an import from the West, China has got its own traditional forms of comedy. The best known is Xiangsheng, a witty and sometimes bawdy conversation between two male comedians that began in the mid-1800s. And for the first decades of its existence, um, women were not even allowed to sit in as spectators. Today that form has been revived with a younger generation of comedians, still mostly
3: male.
2: One of them, Guo Degang, um, who is considered a real master of Xiangsheng, last year said that he wouldn't recruit women for his troupe, um, which caused rather an uproar. He claimed then that he was doing this out of respect for them. The idea that they wouldn't be able to withstand the pressures of the stage and and the off-colour jokes.
0: And for those who do make it to the stage, what's been the reaction to female comedians beyond the evident desire to censor them?
2: Well, many people are still shocked when women swear on stage. Toilet humour doesn't go down very well when it's coming from a woman. Um, One comedian told me that, you know, the same joke would be seen as, she said, disgusting if a female comedian cracked it, but perfectly acceptable and funny if it came from a man. Another comedian based in Shanghai uh, called Evangeline Zed said that stand-up has become huge in the city now. She thinks that um, there are about 50 weekly performances and that half of those are by women. But many of them still do tread carefully, so that they don't alienate their audiences.
0: So about this backlash, then, against Ms. Yang, what effect do you think that'll have on the scene?
2: Ms. Yang, for her part, has been inspired by the fioré around her gag to create a new one. In this one, she relates in exchange with a male comedian who rather approvingly notes that uh, she is testing men's limits with her jokes. And her mock-incredulous response to that is, do men have limits?
0: Thanks very much for your time, Stephanie.
2: Thank you, Jason.
0: That's all for this episode of The Intelligence. If you like us, leave us a rating and a review. And see you back here tomorrow.
2: Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods